0: richard and welcome to esoteric's podcast you can't eat the sunshine for the week of september 2nd 2013 join us this week as we talk with pioneering downtown restaurateur judith markoff hansen about her remarkable journey opening gorky's at 8th and san Julian in 1981 we'll also visit with acting city archivist michael holland for an introduction to the hidden treasures waiting to be discovered in los angeles's archive so stay tuned Los Angeles.
1: El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels.
0: The Day of the Locust. The slide area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But
1: you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add
0: flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to 5th and Main.
1: As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway.
0: Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city.
1: Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules.
0: Rainer Bannum said that.
1: He taught us well.
0: In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation.
1: Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia.
0: Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore,
1: memory maps, mysteries, murder,
0: the allocation of resources,
1: the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill,
0: preservation,
1: restoration,
0: redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine but you can drive around and take a long hard look,
1: and listen to the stories,
0: and pass them on. Why are we doing this again?
1: Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason.
0: So did Rainer Manum.
1: So he did. Now let's begin.
2: You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood, called Hermina between
0: welcome to our podcast for the week of september 2nd 2013 this week's guests are judith markoff hansen she is the former restaurateur who created gorky's yay and we're also going to talk with michael holland michael holland is the acting city archivist so we'll talk to him about the city archive which is something most angelinos know nothing about though. Get are very excited. Uh, we want to welcome you for tuning in, and we hope you continue to stay tuned. And Kim, now is the time in the call sheet when you talk about the Pishka.
1: That's true, I do. And we got a little something in the Pishka just a few minutes ago. And it's always lovely to get one of these donations from a listener who just wants to give us something in the digital tip jar. as a way of saying thank you for all of this free entertainment. It is free. But we do welcome your contributions. They help with the cost of gas as we roam the Southland looking for groovy people to talk to. And, you know, gas prices are edging up again. We're not going to stop roaming. But if you want to throw a little something in the fish, we'll certainly be grateful. And you'll get a nice note from us if you do. And you can find that digital tip chart on the podcast web page. Thank you.
0: Kim, Let's uh, let's get to this. We have a lot to talk about. We're now going to roll into the closely watch train section of the podcast. Out of the gate, I just, uh, I want to toot my own horn. Toot, toot. I I had a feature article written about my Boyle Heights, Monterey Park, uh, Melting Pot Tour, which is part of our California Culture series at Esoteric, and uh, it's feeling pretty good.
1: Terrific little piece by, not that little actually, by Kate Lithicum, and uh, we are so grateful for her getting on the bus and and filtering that tour through her sensibility. It's a tour we've been giving for several years now, and it's taken a lot of different permutations, and it it actually came out of two different tours, and then we realized that we can really look at Boyle Heights in the early 20th century and the San Gabriel Valley right now as two sides of the same coin, and Kate is on the immigration beat for the L.A. Times. And so she came out to look at this as part of her coverage of Southland immigration. And we're just super grateful. And of course, we'll share the link and hope you enjoy the article as much as we do. We have to get a hold of the physical copy, though, because the photos are different. And we hear that uh, Bunker Hill's own native son, Gordon Patterson, is in the print edition.
0: Kim, I, I think you missed the ball. It was out about five days ago. So I think if you haven't picked up a copy by now, you're just, you are just you you missed the boat.
1: Oh, my gosh, guys. We, we record these a few days earlier. You know, it's actually 100 degrees now. It's probably really cool when you're listening to this. In which case, enjoy.
0: I can't believe you just said that, Kim.
1: I broke the third wall. Or the fourth wall. Wall breaker.
0: Can we move on? Mocha.
1: Oh, Mocha. Yeah. Museum of Contemporary Art. Lots going on there. Um, One director out, another one coming in. Don't really know... Mocha. A lot going on there. One director going out, another coming in. We don't really know who that incoming director is, but a lot of people are very excited and they're watching the signs and they're reading the tea leaves. Of course, uh, Jeffrey Deitch, the outgoing director, is already curating commercial shows in New York. Tacky very tacky. I'm sure he'll donate any proceeds to the museum. Um, but interestingly, Anne Goldstein, who's probably one of the longest tenured curators at Mocha, one of the many great curators who left during the very, very dark years when they spent down their entire endowment, and Eli Broad came in and took excessive control of the board. Uh, she went to Amsterdam and has been running the. Stedelijk Museum, I hope I'm saying that correctly. I've I've been there, I love it. It's where they have Barney's Beanery by Ed Keenholz, the 3D installation that you can poke your head inside, and there's that wonderful old West Hollywood bar represented with all of the barflies with clock faces. It actually made me cry. I was so homesick in Amsterdam. Um, But Anne has just resigned her position, and that's pretty interesting because she's obviously high on everyone's list as the possible successor. Director, um, and she's she knows the institution very well, and she's tight with Joel Wax, who's on the um, solicitation board. Or they, they, what are they calling this board? They're they well, anyway. Kind of There's a board of people who are trying to figure out who's going to run the museum now that it's where it is. And um, I think that could be super interesting if she came back. It would certainly be a return to form. So let us wait. Let us see. We will keep you posted. It's a closely watched train.
0: Kim, a nice little piece last week in the Pasadena Paper by Larry Wilson about the Rialto Theater. So nice that I'm just going to read the statement given by the uh, man who's hanging up the nonprofit Friends of the Rialto. This is, of course, a story about the Rialto Theater on Fair Oaks in South Pasadena. The uh, gentleman's name is S. Scott Norton, and uh, this is this is a nice little nice little quote from him about saving the Rialto and and the, the possible paths. Could you describe the condition of the Rialto? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the Rialto is this wonderful... Oh, gosh. Uh, Spanish? Yeah, it's Spanish Cona Revival. It's on Fair Oaks. It's just south of the freeway. It's been boarded up for about three years now. I think Mark Kubas owns it.
1: It's a complicated thing. There's a family trust. Landmark Theatres has a long lease, but they're not operating it.
0: It's It was sealed. It was boarded up... Uh, building and safety. Passing a building and safety, I guess, ordered it, shuttered.
1: No, it was already shuttered, but they got very concerned when pieces started falling right. of the sidewalk. So that's when they got involved. <sighs>
0: it's 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 a mess. You're it's thinking of Mark
1: Cuban, by the
0: way. Oh, Mark Cuban, right? Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of Anna Kubas. From There's Jose so many people w- in your head. No, I just I can't help but think about Jose wizar every every day of my life because he's a preservation <laughs> guy. Um, all right, S. Scott Norton gave this really great statement about possible paths to save this shuttered, dilapidated, great old vintage theater in South Pasadena on Faroaks. And I'm just going to read you the statement he gave to Larry, because it's obviously incredibly well thought out, and he knows what he's talking about. Eminent domain, and that's obviously one of the possibilities, how do you save it, A city taking control of it. Eminent domain, says Norton, is a complicated issue and would only solve one of many problems. If the city chose to go to court to take the Rialto, then what? The funds needed to restore the Rialto are more than the city budget. I will repeat that. The funds needed to restore the Rialto are more than the city budget. And the city of South Pasadena is not in the business of fundraising and running a theater. I agree that the trust and landmark theaters are unlikely to take on a major restoration by themselves, but they might be a partner in it if presented with a viable business plan. Eminent domain would only antagonize the largest stakeholders and put the Rialto in the lap of a city that cannot do it by themselves. We think there is a better alternative, and that's what we are working on. We welcome all who want to support the Rialto! For more information on the Rialto, blah, 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 etc., cetera, et cetera, go to the website friendsoftherialto.org. All right. Good job. Good job, Escott. i will buy you beer next time I see you.
1: I support the Rialto reopening, and I let Escott know that if the Rialto opens, we will add it to our Pasadena Confidential Tour. We're passing by anyway, and it actually has a really extraordinary criminal association uh, um, one, of, one of the most fascinating L.A. murder stories is the story of little Marion Parker's kidnapping by Edward Hickman, who called himself the Fox, Christmas 1927, and uh, a schizophrenic gentleman who, who kidnapped the one of two twin daughters of his former employer at a bank, and he took her basically around town. They had a lot of fun together before he eventually strangled her when directed to do so by Providence, who was a large white figure who used to appear to him. At least that's what he told his attorney. And one of the fun things they did before he killed her was they went and saw a show at the Rialto, a little bit of vaudeville and a movie. So that's definitely something I would add to our tour, even if we were just passing by and talking about it.
0: Thanks, Kim. Next item, we have two two more trains. Next one, just a a note. This next item, this next watch train, I'm so happy about because this is a testament to the breadth and the reach and the power of the internet. This is this is an item about the Serbian Cemetery at Third and Eastern in unincorporated East Los Angeles. It is nestled into the Cloverleaf Interchange between the Pomona 60 Freeway. And the seven ten freeway, it is a truly out of the way place for Los Angeles County. Obviously you could walk up into Angeles uh into into the forests of Angeles Crest and you know you'd be remote remote. But but in, in terms of, of actually, you know, Los Angeles County and getting around, it's pretty pretty uh isolated spot. Nevertheless, article about chickens. Yeah, they are chickens living in the Serbian cemetery. The caretaker's caretaker's got it under control. I he, guess he's feeding them. I guess they're roosting in the trees. But just really, I think, really great. People are calling in tips. And- well, beyond
1: that, as actually a photographer who's been taking lovely, I, I have to call them portraits because they have personalities, portraits of the chickens. And that's why the East Sider blog covered this lovely, funny little story. Now, the caretaker is eating the eggs. He's doing this in order to keep the chickens from overpopulating the cemetery it's a pretty small cemetery so i'm a little concerned about the caretaker's cholesterol so let us all say a prayer for the caretaker the chickens and the
0: serbs okay kim all right we're not we're not done with this okay Okay. serbians no no, kim we're done when i say we're done (laughs) serbian cemetery third and eastern has a church has a chapel that saint saba Serbian Orthodox Church, St. Saba, is on St. Gabriel Boulevard, just one block south of the valley. Father Peter, Papa Petras, is the priest the, in, in charge of, of that congregation. Uh, the chapel there, uh, Father Peter gives services once a month in that chapel on Saturdays. No, uh, four times a year. I'm sorry, it's, quarter, it's in quarterly. In Serbia? Yes, Kim, they do the proper... Serbian Orthodox Mass there at the cemetery. You have to call Father Peter. That's very simple. Just call St. Saba's and ask for Father Peter. Uh, get, the, get the schedule from him. It's, uh, it's something we've been meaning to do, and we just keep missing it because we have these pesky bus tours that just sort of take over our our, our, our weekends. But if you can get away, if you can get down there, I really encourage you to attend uh, the Mass at the Serbian, at the chapel in the Serbian cemetery. And it'll be given by Father Peter. And he's a great guy. He's the guy that built St. Saba's on St. Gabriel. He came out in the early 60s and just uh, raised the funds and made it happen. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful piece of Byzantine architecture.
1: Yeah, I mean, he found the Mosaicist. He was a very, very serious patron of his church. And he loves it. They have feasts, too.
0: He's a great guy. Okay, we um Pershing Square Right so so last week uh, there was a press conference uh, out of CD14 about a task force that's been put together to uh, look at re reenvisioning Pershing Square Kim do you want to say something about that
1: Yeah I'm Pershing Square is a topic of great fascinating fascination for us we've been doing a lot of work on it over the years um, it really came onto our Radar as something to look at very, very closely when we had the opportunity to premiere some beautiful color photos by George Mann, 3D photos that were taken in the early 1950s of the redesign. The park was... um, Basically, it, it's been a public park since the 1860s. In 1910, the great Los Angeles architect John Parkinson, the architect of Union Station, Los Angeles City Hall, among many other landmarks, laid it out as a classic European-style park. So it was um, you know, walkways that were paved with bricks, lined with benches, shaded over by banana trees. At the center was a gorgeous fountain, Um, sculptures, statues at various corners. I mean, just really a classic space. And people used it as a shortcut, and it was the great gathering place, really the the, the living room of downtown Los Angeles. And this was the park that um, people love and remember and that you've seen a lot of the vintage photographs and postcards. Uh, But the George Mann photos are of the next iteration of the park. In 1951, the park was closed, um, and they dug beneath it and they put in a subterranean parking lot and also a bomb shelter, which was the fashion at the time. And when they came back, they raised the park a bit because of this elevated parking lot, and they moved the benches to the outer ring, and the center of the park became a, basically a hot plate, a very big lawn that was unshaded. Not a great design. Subsequent designs were even worse, and as downtown Los Angeles emptied out of people with the raising of Bunker Hill, and then eventually when the banks left in the 80s, and then after the riots, people were sort of scared of downtown, um, the park became a neglected space. The Biltmore famously turned its back on it by moving its lobby into the Grand Street entrance, and the park ended up with this terrible design in 1993, which is Brutalist and confusing and broken out there's no sight lines it's a it 's a rough place. And uh, so a lot of bloggers, including ourselves, have been looking at it. We wrote the piece for On Bunker Hill. Uh, Brigham Yen with DTLA Rising actually recently went up to San Francisco and did a whole photo essay on Union Square and ways in which Pershing Square could really learn from Union Square to create more positive public space. Nathan Masters uh, from LA's subject KCET SoCal Connected has blogged about the history of the park and its many iterations. So a lot of people are looking at it, and, and everyone seems to agree, something's got to be better than this. And so I think um, a really important moment in in pushing the dialogue of what are we going to do about Pershing Square was a, a piece that Gail Holland wrote in the Los Angeles Times about the very, the, the really the civic failure of Pershing Square and how it, it's beholden on the city to get it together and provide a better public space. And here we go. A uh, press release comes out of CD14 formation of a new task force, a uh, re-envisioning Pershing Square task force with a lot of downtown stakeholders, you know, business owners, property owners, people in the immediate vicinity of Pershing Square, people from the bids, and um, I think one person from the homeless department for the city. No one. No one representing the homeless community themselves, though. And, of course, they're the largest users of the park. No one from the Biltmore, which I thought was odd. And then this video from Gensler Architects, which recently moved downtown. And they've produced this um, analysis of the space looking at the population, the demographics, the immediate vicinity in terms of businesses and flow of people and various possibilities of how it can be used um, Really a flashy video when the the design choices that are presented are, are still largely hardscape. Um, so when this was covered in the local online media, um, big posts on uh, DTLA Rising, Brigham Yen's blog, and on Curbed L.A., It's really an extraordinary thing. I spend a lot of time on the internet and comments are comments and people are antagonistic to each other usually. And it's very easy to disagree and people have a lot of different opinions. And usually when they're talking about parks, there are a million opinions. See dogs versus babies in recent weeks on this podcast. But something really extraordinary happened with the comments on the re-envisioning Pershing Square task force. There was uniform agreement. Why are we re-envisioning Pershing Square? We had a great Pershing Square. It was a park. It was really simple. I've seen the postcards. I've seen the photos. And people were simply saying, this is what we want. Why do we have to overthink this? We don't want a grand park with pink benches where you look at it and you're like, well, that color is really 2012. And they don't want a Spring Street Park, which is filled with hardscape and a little mound where the dogs go. And then the people with the babies are upset that the dogs are too close to their babies or going pissing on the grass. They want a normal old-fashioned park. They want their Pershing Square back. Um, And I noticed in among all of this uniformity of opinion, some people were expressing concern that there was this task force that had been formed and it wasn't really a public entity. They didn't understand if there'd be public meetings or a way for the community to have a voice. And it just occurred to me, reading this and looking at the video and, and thinking about how much passion uh, people have for Pershing Square, and we, we certainly see it on our tours. I don't think there's any public space we take people into on the low down, down on downtown tour where people have less to say. It, they, they really feel passionately about the mistakes of Pershing Square. They want to know why nothing's being done. They want to know how they can help. And they'd say it's so obvious. It, this was a great park. Why can't this park be great again? So... Um, wanting to amplify the voices of the people that I was reading on the blogs and and our own voices as well, because we've been saying this for years. I um, put a petition together online on change.org, directed to Mayor Garcetti, City Council, and uh, Rec and Parks. And I said in this petition, which has been signed by um, quite a number of people and some really beautiful comments are being made and it's being spread in social media, don't re-envision Pershing Square, restore Pershing Square. Let's go back to John Parkinson's lost design, which people still look back on as a classic, an urban oasis, a space that they wish still existed. You know, we can't bring Bunker Hill back. No one's ever going to build those mansions again. That breaks people's hearts too. But when you look at the failed promise of Pershing Square, the notion of getting a bunch of smart, well-meaning people together and spending their energy trying to figure out how to fix it just seems like a huge waste of their time and of, of all of this energy. Let's figure out how we can restore this gem of downtown. I think that nothing would make the vast majority of Angelinos happier, and it would really be a great way to undo many 60-plus years of damage. I think it can be done. I think that the voices of the people are very, very clear, and I hope that our uh, elected officials and um, all the folks who have the power to do something about this are listening. It's a really good idea. So please, sign our petition. Thank you.
0: All right, Kim. Uh, Let's just call out, let's look ahead to September for LAVA events. Sunday, September 15, we've got Brian Kaiser, one of our favorite people. He's going to be at the former Roebling Steel Cable Company, which is now Angel City Brewery at first in Alameda. And he's going to be talking about the custom Bachelder Tile, which... The employees commissioned Bachelder to design and create for the lobby. Okay, this is going to be a great event. The Roeblings are a great example of Germans really helping to define 19th century industry in America. Brian, being German-American, has a great interest in, in the Roeblings. Brian Brian loves
1: German American, his great 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 guarded George Washington. Smart guy. Didn't want any English speaking guards.
0: Right. So, so this this event on Sunday, September fifteenth, it's going to be great. Um, we just opened up reservations for that. So, if you're listening and you want to sign up, go. Just go. We'll include we we'll include the link, obviously. So, go sign up and get ready for that. And uh, and that and that's can We need to move along. So we're we're going we're going to stop there. Okay.
1: People can see the calendar. It's yeah. on the website.
0: Right? No, I know. Okay, so come uh, out
1: and play. We love you.
0: Interviews. Okay, that's what this podcast is all about. Interviews. First interview is with Michael Holland. He's the acting city archivist for the Los Angeles City Archive. Our second interview is Judith Markoff Hanson. Let's let's uh, let's talk about Judith first because we're going to interview her last. Judith was the woman who created. Gorky's, That's right, Gorky's, 8th and San Julian. Really important location uh, for me growing up. Gorky's, Gorky's...
1: A 24-hour restaurant in
0: the the produce district? Yeah, uh, open 1981, 82, and uh, she sold it in 84, and just, uh, just, Gorky's was really important. I mean, wow, Gorky's... I'm so happy we interviewed her, that we're starting to get the chronicle of this down. And I think people who, who remember downtown back then will find this very interesting, people who don't, I think will find it very interesting. It's a really interesting meditation on someone with a vision to come back downtown that doesn't have a lot of money from the CRA. So you're going to love it. I, I, Judith is one of my favorite people. I look forward to interviewing her frequently for this podcast. Okay. First interview, let's uh, let's get into that. First interview, as I just said, Michael Holland, acting city archivist. The Los Angeles City Archive is a very interesting place. It is an archive that holds documents about the city of Los Angeles, and it's that simple. It took me a long time to figure that out. I'm not sure why it took me so long. Why? Do you know why, Cam?
1: Because you never finished your art history degree.
0: Oh, that must be it. Yeah. I, I you were forg- so close. I forgot that. Yeah, that must be it. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's a cryptic place. I mean, it, it should be incredibly straightforward. In a, in a way, it is. And yet, at the same time, it's in a vault. It's a vault in a vault. It's very mysterious. It's tucked away between Union Station, the Jail Denny's, and the Jail. And not too many people go there or know about it, and yet every time you go, you see things that completely blow your mind. And I think that actually the things we see there almost put us into a state of trance because they're so important. Yeah. So it takes some time to sort of assimilate what, what experiences we have in that vault, in the vault.
0: So we're going to, we, we, we did a couple interviews with Michael, and we'll push those through the channel over the next couple months. It's a, The city archive is a very important place.
1: And they want you to visit.
0: So, we're raising consciousness about that, so let's take it away with my interview with Michael. Michael, thank you. Thank you for meeting us. We're here with you at the City Archive. I would like you, first of all, to just introduce yourself and tell us your title here, and then we'll begin to unravel the uh, unravel what this place is oh. and... and, 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 and ha- <laughs> well,
3: I am Mike Holland, and I am the Acting City Archivist for the City of Los Angeles. And we are at the Los Angeles City Archives. And just to kind of get some clarification of what the archive is, we are part of the City Clerk's Office for the City of Los Angeles. So we are part of the city government. And our primary function is the Records Management Division, which means that we store, manage, and make accessible Government documents, most of them generated by the city government itself, be it the various city departments, the city council, the mayor's office, uh, various other agencies. And so we have two types of storage at our facility. One is uh, short term storage, which is more of a warehouse type situation, and we have operating records for most of the city departments, with certain exceptions. One would be uh, Los Angeles Police Department. We don't have any of their evidence, for example. We don't have their DNA. We don't have that kind of material. We also don't have records for DWP, Harbor, airports, because they are uh, proprietary departments. So that means they they have their own storage, they have their own archiving uh, facilities and principles. So what we have then are records for most of the other departments to some degree, building and safety, planning, uh, et cetera, and so forth. A lot of them are accessible only to the city employees who work in those departments, uh, simply because that they are in, two inside baseball for most people's use, <laughs> but there are exceptions. Uh, the planning department records would include things such as planning cases, zoning administration, uh, various sorts of other planning documents, and they are accessible to the public with a couple of caveats. Uh, those types of records, you always go through the city department that created the documents. We have legal custody here on the premises, but they have—or excuse me—they we have physical custody because they're stored here on the premises. However, the department of creation has legal custody and so they decide uh, how many hoops you have to go through to look at a particular document. Now so for example if you as a homeowner you want to build a fence on your property line or you want to put a swimming pool or a tennis court or some other sort of improvement or change to your property, you would contact the playing department, they have a records unit, and you give them your property address and they will generate a list of documents uh, similar to what's online, and we can certainly go into that later because online there's a, t- a lot of resources for the city.
0: Yes, but later, yes. Yes, much later.
3: All right. So we are actually one of, we are actually open to the public. Uh, we deal a lot with the city. We deal with various city departments, be they the mayor's office, city attorney, building safety, LAPD, et cetera, and so forth. We also deal with the public. Uh, people who find us and come into our office and usually they will have contacted us in advance saying, I need to see this type of material. Now the way that works with the archives, the archive is different. The archive is comprised of historical documents, documents that we have determined or have been determined to be of historical significance going back to the 19th century, going back as far as 1828, When all of this, when all of Southern California, when all of California, was property of the Mexican government. And so we have a lot of documents in the original Spanish, in addition to English translations and moving up through the time to the present. We also have materials uh, from councilmatic collections, uh, some mayoral collections. Those things we are legally mandated to collect and preserve and make available to the public during normal office hours uh, preferably they just give us a call in advance we can set some I can set something up for them but uh, primarily that's kind of how we operate we are hundred percent open hundred percent transparent to the uh, to the general public in addition to the Los Angeles Times or various other news organizations in addition to scholars researchers academics from all over the country all over the world actually
0: that was fantastic. We're going to continue a little bit of what you are and what you aren't, what you can and what you can't. But let's let's tell people where we actually are, because we're in the Irwin C. Piper Tech's Tech Center. So why don't, you, why don't you tell us the full proper name of the building and, and where it is? Oh, I can't tell you that. I
3: have to kill you for that. <laughs> no, actually, we are uh, we are at the Irwin C. Piper Technical Center. It was named for uh, Irwin, uh, C. Irwin Piper, who was the... Who was the city administrative officer for a number of years? And uh, our street address is five 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 Ramirez Street. And if anyone is familiar with that particular part of downtown, we are just north of the one ten freeway, at uh, well the one hundred and one freeway, the Vigna Street. I don't drive down here, so I, you know, directions are not very good, are not my strong suit. We are just north of the one of the one hundred and one freeway, the Vigna Street off ramp, and that puts us just. Across the street from the gate, the Gateway Travel Center, which is the backside of Union Station, and we're also a block or two south of Twin Towers. So we're in an interesting little geographic pocket, and par- we're also up against the,
0: uh, the the Los Angeles River. Perfect. That's it. And and I will add just one more landmark: the the Denny's. You're right across the street from oh, yes. the, 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 the
3: Denny's. Especially since it's now called the Denny's again. It went through an ownership change, and it went from Denny's to the Big Bang Coffee Shop, and I'm told that nothing else changed other than the name, and they weren't obviously doing any business under Big Bang, so they went back to being a Denny's, and I hear nothing has changed over there.
0: I I believe you. I haven't. All right, let's continue. Let's, um, let's. So, for instance, if I wanted to pull the papers of uh, former council member Joel Wax because I wanted to write a biography of Joel Wax because he now runs the Warhol Foundation. He's a super interesting guy, and I want to understand his early work in the arts, I could just give you a call send you an email, and and we could arrange to have Joel Wax's papers from his time as council member pulled up, and I could go through them here.
3: That's an an oversimplified way to do it. But, yes, in a nutshell, that's exactly how it would be done. But to break it down a little bit more specifically, you would contact me either by phone or by email. Email tends to work better because I can get that wherever I am, whether it's nights, weekends, away from the office. Um, There is a searching, a finding aid on the city website that lists box-by-box Wax's papers. And so if you're interested in a specific chronological period or a specific part of of Wax's work, because keep in mind he was in office for 30 years, and so you're talking about 300-plus boxes of material. And I don't mind pulling boxes, (laughs) but I I think 20 to 25 a day is just about, I'm sure there's got to be, there's got to be some legal limit there somewhere, but out of 300 boxes, I'm sure that you can find a lot of useful material in 5, 10, 15, 20 over, or maybe a couple of days if you wanted to do that. But yes, that's pretty much how you would contact me. We would Basically, go over the finding aid, and you can decide. I want to see that box, that box, that box, that box. And I, being the only staff member in the ar- in the vault, in the archive, I would pull those boxes for you, bring them out to our reading room where we're sitting, and you can spend as much time as you want reviewing the material. Uh, nowadays, because people have smartphones and flatbed scanners and wand scanners and good and good digital cameras. Uh, People use those quite often to document things. We're cool with that. If you want to go the old-fashioned route and make paper photocopies, you can do that at $0.10 cents a page self-service. Nothing, No problem with that. As I said, these are public documents. And so they are meant to be reviewed, they're meant to be used, and they are meant to be seen. And that is certainly one of the things that I'm excited about doing this podcast, like I'm excited about doing any sort of interview, is letting people know that we're here, that we
0: exist Perfect. Let's, um, I, I, I don't want to dwell on what you're not, but as we, as we demarcate the, the problem space, which is the Los Angeles City Archive, I really just want to spend a couple more minutes on you telling us what, what you're not, so people really get a, a good sense of, of, of the boundaries and what is and what isn't.
3: Okay. Well, we are not the Huntington. We are not uh, USC. We're not UCLA. We're not the Motion Picture Academy. And I'm specifying those institutions, they're great institutions. I know people there, they're terrific, they've got great stuff. But you have certain qualifications that you have to meet to get a reader's card, to use the Huntington Library as an example. As I said, we are 100% transparent and open to the public. That means all the public. And so we don't have those sorts of barriers to prevent someone from coming in and doing research. Now, we want to have um, intelligent inquiries. Otherwise, it's a waste of their time, and frankly, it's a waste of my time. If someone just wanders in, we want to see this sort of stuff, we don't have it, because it's not in our purview, or it's just not the kind of material we would uh, we would have. There are maybe other institutions that would have that, and so that's why I always communicating first and making arrangements to come in saves everybody a lot of time and is a lot more efficient. That being said, because most of our materials are generated in-house, in other words, by the city, by the very city departments, we don't take outside collections. We don't really take donations, although we have had one or two outstanding collections that were, in fact, donated to us. And so they have been very, very valuable, and we'll certainly go into those. But we don't buy collections; we don't do that sort of thing. We have, as I said, we have no budget for it, and it's really not within our our mandate or a purview. I had someone uh, contact me a year or so back with some terrific nineteen thirty two Olympic material. Uh, we've got nineteen thirty two Olympic material based on the city's involvement and the city documents, but we don't have room for that kind of memorabilia that they, were, that they had. And so I referred them over to uh, the 80, 1984 Foundation, which, of course, that's exact. Yeah. And so it's, that particular institution is much better designed for that kind of material. So some of the, the initial contact would be defining what it is that you're trying to look for and are we, in fact, the best institution for it. There are some things that, frankly, we're not very good at. Uh, the more specific the inquiry is, the better we can, we can serve the client. Um, most of our materials are primary documents. That means that they are completely original. Textbooks, uh, various other materials that are called secondary sources refer to original documents, primary sources. So I usually tell people, do all your secondary resources first, and where they cite uh, city documents, or if they cite the archive specifically in the footnotes and endnotes and in the bibliographies and so forth, that's when you come to us to help us connect the dots and fill in the gaps that maybe someone didn't fill in when they were doing their particular part of the research. And sometimes the same documents will be, uh, will be spun completely differently depending on your perception and where you're coming from in this particular uh, you know, intellectual quest.
0: That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I want to get to some original documents, and, and you and I, between you and I on this table, is a a picked list from Hinda that I want to get through. But before we do that, I want you to actually, we're, we're in the Piper Tech Center. You're on the top floor. I want you to actually to physically describe the archive because it is a, a bit of a it's, it's it's a highly stable it's a highly stable environment.
3: It's more stable than your average warehouse setting. It does have a secure vault door. We do have something resembling climate and temperature control. Um, that being said, it's not 100% perfect. It originally wasn't designed to be the... the. Uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, keep in mind, in the early 1980s, there was only so much that you could do to preserve and protect... Documents. This is not the Library of Congress. We don't have unlimited funding. And so back then they did the best they could with what they had to work with, and that's kind of the way we still operate today. But truth be told, considering how old some of the materials are, they're in fabulous shape. And the storage conditions are stable, stable enough, because we have to state we have to account for paper, uh, magnetic media such as videotape and audio tape, photographs. Slides, Uh, and of course, all the new media such as DVDs and CDs, and and, uh, say maps and drawings and things like that that are preserved in mylar or or polyester, and various sorts of laminates. So there isn't one particular temperature setting and humidity setting that's perfect for all those types of materials. We would have to have the vault broken down into. You know, several segregated sections. That's just not practical. But it does hold approximately, there's about 17,000 boxes in there right now, along with maps, along with various uh, file boxes and file drawers full of audio cassettes, video cassettes, CDs, DVDs. Uh, there's even some 16-inch transcription materials. There's scrapbooks, uh, photograph albums, uh, the, the occasional ceremonial gold shovel, and, very, and various other uh, three-dimensional things that find their way in here because someone thinks we absolutely have to have them. So that's kind of how the vault is is described. We do ma- try to maintain a, the temperature as best we can, the humidity as best we can. It is locked. It is secured. It does have a fire suppression system, which I am told is no longer economically viable. So if we use it once, I have no idea what we're going to replace it with. <laughs> we hope that there's never a
0: fire up here. We 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 do too. Let's let's move on because I don't want to think about that. Okay. Um, between us on this table is a is a, a, a collection of documents that Hinda Rudd, the the archivist emeritus compiled, do you want to just, um, she, she's put this together for people when, when, they, uh, when they come by for a tour. Do you want to uh, just sort of walk through a couple of these documents? Well, Hinda, when Hinda retired,
3: this was put together for her retirement, uh, her retirement party. Uh, she was the first city archivist. And so she was the woman who oversaw all of this being installed and being put together and being presented the way that it is. And it hasn't changed all that much. But what she did was at the time, because I was here when we were putting it all together, we, she literally went through and said, I want this material. And so Jay Jones, who was the acting city archivist, my predecessor, my boss at the time, he and I went through, we pulled all these various materials together and either photocopied them or if they were a map or a drawing, we would get pictures of them, some sort of representation of them. And then Hinda had written a little description of each of these particular items. There have been a couple of occasions in the last few years, not as regular, but there have been a couple of occasions where she said, I want to set some of these things out and have an open house here at the archive. And so we've kind of used this as a menu to pull, uh, if not all of these items, because there's about 24, 25 of them, but let's say a half dozen to a dozen. And so we would put them out and have them out so people could see them. And so um, these things were very, very special to her, and so she went out of her way to uh, put these together in this compilation and explain why they were special. And so they're still special in that way, because they are actually our really our seminal collection.
0: It, yes, they are your seminal collection, which is why I want you just to pick three, and we'll take them one at a time, and just... just Talk about them. I, this is this is just so any of these documents you're about to talk about, people could come in, they could find it in the finding aid, mm-hmm. and you could and you could pull it for them. They can look at look at the original or a, a a close facsimile if the original is too too fragile. Right. Well, in the
3: case of the first one I'll pick, it would be the deed to Griffith Park, and you don't have to go very far to look for it. It's hanging up on the wall, because when they when Griffith J. Griffith donated the property to the city, all 3,000 acres of it or so at the time, in 1896. They made a big deed. And I'm looking at it, it's approximately maybe 20 by 24 inches. It's literally a full-sized, if you can imagine a painting in a wood frame, that's what you have. And it it has all the standard nomenclature of a deed, It's handwritten. It's described in means and bounds. And it is signed, dated. And it is probably the most significant uh, piece of real estate that this city has had and is probably the most important piece of real estate this city will ever have. Because there is still, even 100 years later, even 100-plus years later, It is still a fascinating subject. I mean, there are entire books written on various uh, aspects of Griffith Park, whether it's the observatory or uh, various other things. And it's endlessly fascinating.
0: It it, it is, and I I remember in in my lunches with Hinda, she says, she's told me that um, attorneys used to come in, city attorneys, attorneys with the city attorney's office would come in and, and look at this deed as an example they would have to write deeds, much smaller deeds, of course. But this was really was a, a template in in the the first half of the century for city attorneys wanting to draft documents. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that that because uh,
3: this is that particular document is in its own way part of an origin. I mean, we understand that yes, we have this language, this nomenclature, this structure. But, you know, why is it so important? When did we start using it? And you have a document like that particular deed, which is not only significant, but it's highly technical. And and that wasn't the only piece of property, by the way. That just happened to be the first one. There were several other pieces of property that Griffith deeded over to the city. There was a piece of property that was switched, that was traded off, actually, with the, um, uh, the Hollywood annexation. When the city of Hollywood became part of the city of Los Angeles in 1910, there was a small piece along Los Feliz Boulevard. And Griffith, apparently, if I remember the story correctly, uh, wanted that to become part of the Griffith Park property. But it had to be, it couldn't be done just, it couldn't be signed over as a gift. It had to go through the approval process, and they were doing an annexation, and so it became Coal, uh, Coal Grove, I believe, is the, uh, was the, uh, the section. And so it had to be voted on, and it was approved. But it was just one of those ongoing things. I mean, there was more property being added to Griffith Park until basically until Griffith died. And then after he was dead, then they started discussing what to do with it whether it was the observatory, the incline railway, which still hasn't been built to this day, uh, the, key, uh, the, the golf courses, and all the other fun things that, uh, you know, that, have, that have been there in their time and may even
0: still be there. Fantastic. Let, uh, pick, pick another one. This is, this is great. I love this. All right. Let's see. Let's pick another one. The, the city cemetery. Ooh, good ch- good choice. Tell us where the city cemetery was before you go any further. The city cemetery, this was
3: the old city cemetery, and if you can imagine the downtown, and you know where the LAUSD district building is, near the cathedral, near the criminal courts building.
0: That, that's approximately, let's just say, Temple and Hope. Right. approximately let's just let's just pick an intersection and we'll say temple and hope right and so that particular
3: area used to be the first cemetery that the that the city had it was probably not i let me take it back it's probably not the first the first one was probably attached to the mission, but this was the first cemetery that had uh organizations that owned pieces of it they'd they bought sections of it and broke it down into plots for their members, for their subscribers, whether it was the Independent Order of Foresters, uh, if it was the Order of Redmen, which I'm not quite sure what that was. Then there was the French Benevolent Society. So there were several organizations, uh, you know, uh, societies that bought sections of it, divided up into plots, and then sold it to their membership or they or their subscribers. And at one point in time, I... Do not know exactly when they had to dig it all up, and so they moved everyone out of there. But we do have the map of how it was originally laid out, how all the the streets were given these you know these these names such as Eternity Street, uh, Avenue of Tears, uh, Hope, which may have been part of the uh, the original boundary, and so some of the and some of those. Uh, associations with with you know with sorrow and sadness and you know eternal joy et etc and so forth, the fun thing about the map that we have at least the the copy of it that we have because there's probably several different ones that i 've seen this one has in pencil and others in pen names written on the plots as far as who presumably who they either were sold to, possibly who they were who occupied them. We're not hundred percent sure. Uh, hopefully that'll be something that someone will you know will pick up the spade as it were and and uh, do the research on one day. I know that there's been some studies done with the local cemeteries, be it uh, Rosedale, be it evergreen and etc and so forth. There's a whole a subculture that just loves that sort of stuff, and so hopefully that particular uh, map and the information on it will be of some
0: use someday. Fantastic! I, I I love the city cemetery. I think I think by 1880 that real estate had started to become a little too valuable, and that's about when they started uh, exhuming the, the graves. Because by then Fort Moore started to come up, and you had the Bradbury Mansion. Mm-hmm. You, had, you had the Bradbury House being built on Fort Moore. So I think 1860s to 1880s really when that, that 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 sweet spot for the city cemetery.
3: that that sounds that sounds pretty good my if if I sound a little vague on some of those details that's when I would stop and actually start looking at Mm -hmm. the documents whether the city council minutes that will say okay here's you know we discussed this particular issue on this particular date and the various indexes that cross-reference all those official city documents I was talking about and so if I sound a little bit fuzzy it's only because that i know the more more or less the time frame in which something like this was being done but if you really want specific dates specific times specific places and people oh just
0: give me enough time to pull the documents and I Oh, can do I, I know I, I i i know i know let's let's pick one more document and and we'll this, this is i love this this is great this one is it, it's
3: really hard it's really hard to uh, to pick out any one of these, and I can understand why uh, you know why Hinda spent a fair amount of time going through these uh, and the fun thing is we've actually there's actually a couple of things that I would add to this list because we didn't know i'm going I'm to go off script here yeah. because there's y- yes item. go off script there's an item here that i 'm very very proud of that we were able to find and we were able to get our hands on, but it was after Hinda's time. And so she wouldn't have known about this, but I know she's been thrilled whenever, whenever I've told the story to her because she was partially involved. Back in 1850, before California became a state, before Los Angeles became an American city because of California statehood, there was a push to create a harbor. And the bottom line is that San Pedro was the one that all of the the uh, the power brokers in the city at the time wanted they wanted San Pedro they wanted Wilmington to be that particular port of entry and so they wrote a letter to not one not John C Fremont who was our first state senator in the US Congress when we acquired statehood when we were granted statehood they sent it off to I'm, I have to try to remember the man's name. It was from Missouri. Um, I can easily pull thing. Anyway, here's how we got involved with it. Geraldine Nats, director of the Harbor Department, wonderful woman, smart woman, up to her neck in history and love of history, had run across an article in the San Pedro Pilot about this particular letter and asked us, have you ever heard of this thing? Well, Jay Jones, who was still the acting archivist at the time, and I, we kind of looked around, and we ran across a in the in the original documents of the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties. We found a letter dated to uh, Benton. Thomas Benton was the was the state senator of Missouri that this letter went to. It was written by John Temple, sent off to uh, to uh, Thomas Benton, and they said we want this harbor we don't know how it's going to work out with California becoming a state and so we're sending it to you instead of John C. Fremont who may or may not be able to speak on our behalf and so he described a letter and a petition and so we looked around we couldn't find this petition here is a handwritten letter but we had nothing to attach to it we couldn't find it anywhere and so we thought about it for a few days couple of weeks maybe, scratched our heads, and then we thought, what if this, if this was the original letter, why would it have been sent back? That wasn't common at the time. If we had sent this letter off to D.C., it would have not, it wouldn't have come back. So what if this is a copy? And if that's the case, what if the petition and this letter might still be in Washington, D.C.? So we started to ask ourselves, how do we go about finding this particular document. And because of the wonderful digitalization that we have been fortunate enough to be part of, but also the U.S. Congress, the Library of Congress, God bless them, I found that the Congressional Record and its predecessor, the Congressional Globe, had been digitized. And so, we knew the date, more or less, so I went into the Library of Congress, went into the Congressional Globe database, found the session, found the the, the the week, the month, narrowed it down and because they transcribed all the floor speeches that every senator and all the congressmen you know give, I found the transcript to Benton's speech on behalf of these of these you know fine upstanding men of the city of Los Angeles. And this was, I think, just after we'd gotten statehood. And so, you know, the brand new state of California. And so he had mentioned, you know, this grand petition that these, you know, they've submitted. And so I looked at that and realized that's where it is. And so I contacted Geraldine Nance and said, Geraldine, here's what I found. I copied all this stuff and forwarded it to her. And she said, okay, thanks. They were working on a history of the port. And so this was something that they wanted to include. And so I figured, okay, that's done. Six months later, I'm at an event, and Geraldine says, I've got something for you. And she has this document all rolled up. Bottom line is, she had a contact at the National Archives. They went, and they found the petition. Wow. The petition was basically a couple of pages glued together with this nice calligraphy, you know, detailing what they wanted. And then everybody signed it. And that went on for pages and pages. And so what she gave me was a color photocopy in the original size. And so you unrolled this thing. It's eleven feet long. It is it, it is a a wonderful Grand Slam home run sort of presentation. Because we start off with the question, where is this thing? You know, do we have it? Have we ever had it? And in some respects the document came home to us. And so it's back where it started 160 plus years ago. That's that's
0: that's it's a, that's it's, it's
3: a terrific story. And if if and if I had if I could add one document to this particular Compilation that hinted it—that'd be the one. That'd be the one I'd start with. Okay. Next next time there's a tour, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it. Oh, I will probably—I'll tell you what—the the Archives Bazaar that USC hosts every year, I t- brought it out last year, and unrolled it for a few people, and it was you know one of those you know the wow factor you know one of those sorts of things.
0: I may do it again this year. Perfect Thanks for the fun of it. Perfect. Um, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. I wanna I wanna thank you. We're gonna come back and visit you some more because there's still an incredible amount of stuff we have to delineate and well, explore. Started. Yeah. Right. So I, I want to I thank you for your time and, and we look forward to having you back. Well, thank you. I look forward to it. My name is Ken Bernstein.
3: I'm in Los Angeles City Hall and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. <laughs>
0: Judith, we uh, we've, been, we've been we've been we've had a very nice talk the last little bit, getting getting up to speed on this podcast. Uh, we agreed that we were going to start with uh, last night. You were getting ready to meet me, and you brought out a scrapbook, and in and, and the scrapbook you found a, a bit of Cyrillic script on a napkin. Cafe Casino. And I, I want you to start with this with this napkin with the Cyrillic script. And I think this will get us started in a, a great direction, which I think everyone listening will be very happy to hear.
4: <laughs> well, I was really worried when I heard that I was coming today because I wasn't sure if I remembered dates and names and so on. So I took out the Gorky scrapbook, which had been made for me. And opened it up, and there on page two, after the introductory um, pieces on Gorky's, was a napkin. And it had been written by my now husband, but then someone I just met, the name Gorky's in Cyrillic. I told him I was going to do a restaurant, and he was interested. And he said, ah, what's the name of it? And I told him. Gorky's, which he knew because he knew Russian, he'd, been, he'd studied Russian. And that kind of brought him into the whole picture of things. But then it was still just an idea. I still had such a long way to go to putting something together. And I was working in a job in Beverly Hills, across from Cafe Casino, and at 6.30 in the morning I'd go because I was working with uh, all these gold gold traders all over the world for that job. And uh, that was kind of the beginnings of, um, I guess, really starting to focus and think through what this was all going to mean. And later, that napkin was on right by the the left side of the front door as you exited Gorky's. And it it always made me smile because that was kind of the first real tangible thing I had about the, the restaurant.
0: That's perfect. That's perfect. Let's, um, let's go back a little bit more. Oh, well, First of all, let's get situated. I want you to tell people what Gorky's was and approximately where it, it was.
4: Well, Gorky's was a restaurant that went into kind of a, a, a warehouse area downtown, which was 8th and San Julian, and it was across the street from the flower market. Uh, there was not a lot happening there. But the flower market opened very, very early in the morning. So to me, that seemed like the perfect place for breakfast, lunch, restaurant. And that's what I actually envisioned Gorky's to be. Breakfast, lunch, I was out of there by three or four o'clock in the afternoon, and then I still had a life.
0: Perfect, and and I just I want you to tell us exactly, give us the cross street, just because the, 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 the well let's, let's be complete because Gorky's is very important, very important. I want to get this all straight, and I haven't forgot to ask about the financing either.
4: Okay, <laughs> Gorky's was at on Eighth Street, and uh, it was right next to San Julian, right on the corner. Uh, it had been, I think, two stores, and it had it had held. Um, I think some sort of early computer computer equipment, if I'm correct. I, it was really kind of a vacant space at that time. I walked in, and what I wanted was a big vacant space that I could do something with without any experience.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Great. Okay, so we've set the stage. Let's go back a little bit before the napkin being scribbled out in Cafe Casino in Beverly Hills. Let's go back to your career as a librarian at Manual Arts High School, and and the paint manufacturer. Because so I think that will get us that will sort of that'll, that'll get us up to speed as to your your interest, what, what, how you ended up in in this industrial neighborhood, just just a little southeast of downtown Los Angeles proper.
4: Yeah, it, it's actually all part of the story because um, I was librarian at Manual Arts, which is at Vermont, and then it was, uh, the cross tree was exposition, now it's uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard, and I had a group of kids there that were um, that were interested in art, and I was interested in enlarging their world. And I, I had a VW van, we had what we was called the Art Club, and I would take them to different places uh, around town, best was something close in, so I didn't have to drive very far. And I met, and I'm not sure exactly where I met Dan Citroen, but he was making paint and also very huge canvases on probably Los Angeles Street in downtown. And I went there a few times and took the kids, and we were just really wowed by the whole loft, the thought of lofts, the thought of huge space, um, and that became something that just I found fascinating, and I kept in touch with him. Um, he, I think I met a few other artists there, I can't remember exactly who at that time, but I, that caused me to get to know that area a little bit. I, I grew up in Echo Park and lived in Silver Lake and I, although actually at that time I was living in Echo Park again and I and so I'm an east sider and downtown had been something from my childhood we'd always gone downtown to do shopping I mean it was kind of the in the 50s it was all oh, the most exciting place in town but I, to go back and find it Basically, mostly warehouses, without people living downtown, except artists that were probably tucked away illegally at that point, was um, was kind of you know an exciting deal. And I and I like urban. I just I have always liked and been drawn to city. So there was a few blocks there that were re- was really city, and they were really compelling to me. And it just felt like. An interesting place. I also have to say that Vickman's—I think it was on Santa Fe and Eighth Street—was that was kind of the lure to me um, in the late, in the let's see, yeah, the late '70s. We would meet for coffee there in the morning, and uh, I love Vickman's. I love their pies. I love their coffee, and I and I. And as I mentioned, I sort of measured their seats to find out um, exactly what a good restaurant-sized seat was when I decided to do Gorky's. So Vickman's I give a lot of thanks to.
0: Credit where credit is due is important. Okay, so we've, we've, got, we've got this, this, t- this object, this, this Cyrillic script from Raymond's hand. We've got a little background on, on you being drawn to downtown. It was your mo- that's, these are two good, good points. I want one more anchor. It was your mom's, it's your mom's 97th birthday today. She had a party yesterday. You were just telling us about it. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and your, and your background and uh, your tenacity, which you obviously get from your parents, whom, whom you've brought downtown to live and and we'll, we'll we'll get to that at the end. We'll get to your your statement which I love downtown is a great place for old people to live. But we'll we'll get to that at the end. But tell us about
4: about your folks. Okay, I was actually born in Echo Park and I, my parents were part of a group of of people uh, that came from New York. They shared common values, they shared common politics which were idealistic communism at that time. And uh, that idealism and that feeling um, for man being probably better than <laughs> we are now sure that, not so sure that he is, was, uh, was what brought them here. And also it fueled a lot of our upbringing. Um, we really believed that we could make a better world. And I, we thought that it was going to be much easier than it has been, <laughs> it is, and or has been, um, and so I. They gave us a feeling. First of all, the nice thing about being part of that group was that there was very little sexism, not by the Communist Party, but by the followers who really felt that that girls were worth as much as boys and we could all basically do the same thing. So I grew up with that feeling that I could do what I wanted to do if I worked hard enough at it. And uh, so they gave us those tools. And I think yesterday at my mother's 97th birthday, which we celebrated at our place downtown, and they live down the hall, uh, we... I, I looked around at the other people, I call them kids because we were all kids together, that are the product of those people. We invited to the party the children of my mother's friends because my mother's friends are long gone in most cases. And I looked around and all of them actually have done things in their life that they've pretty much wanted to do Um, Failed sometimes, but never failed totally enough to put them down and out. They always sort of pop up again and try something else. And uh, so it must have been something in our childhood. That's the only childhood I know. So that's the one that that I feel was what most kids got in America in the 50s was you can do anything. I mean, we were Americans, and not only were we Americans, but I had that idealism behind me. And it was a very, it was a world, you know—that was feeding that sort of thinking to us.
0: Perfect, perfect. Okay, let's uh, let's jump into the deep end with Gorky's. We have one last thing to set up. Your brother, your your brother, <laughs> the financing, right? You're right. You're right. Right. I guess no one's ever asked you that before. You said right. so. Okay. You're well, the- let's let's <laughs> get it straight for the record. I want you to quickly get us up to speed on how you're able to finance Gorky's and then let's just jump in with with the schmata kings as they as, as as they as they clamored for hamburgers and french fries okay
4: <laughs> my brother my brother was the unknown or unseen benefactor this whole thing um, he was a kid here my parents dreamed, they'd, they'd never gone to, my father had only gone to eighth grade, my mother had graduated high school. They dreamed of having a scientist's son, and he failed them. At age 13, he started coin, stamp collecting, then coin collecting, and he, was, he had an incredible memory for numbers, and he parlayed it into being very, very rich, by the time he was 16 when he could go out and he had a safe in his bedroom and, um, and he, what he did was he collected <laughs> and so I think that it was when he was about 18 or 19 Esquire magazine mentioned him as one of the up-and-coming capitalists well you can imagine to communist parents I mean this was horrific and for years he felt he really wasn't appreciated for who he was but uh, he, I went to work for him. I designed some boxes for the first issue of the gold coins of China that were done by the Bank of China. And the man, and they invited me because I was the designer to go to Beijing in 1980 and to be part of a photo op. And I was still working as a librarian, but I was getting a new principal, and my b- beloved principal was leaving then, and this new person coming in. It was not going to work. Um, we had a history already when she, before she'd come to the school. So I went to, Ch- to China and I overstayed the um, the time when school was starting at manual arts, and I had to call in and say I'd like an extension because I'm going. I'm in Beijing. Well, you just didn't call from there. You telethat- teletype, you know. And I, she said, no. So she said, "If you don't get here, blah blah, you're, you know, basically you're out of a job. I mean, I would still work for the district, I'm sure." So my brother said, "Listen, if you stay and finish the work that you started there, perhaps you'd like to come in as um, to see if you can handle, you know, taking this project, seeing what you could do with it." So. I did work on the china the gold coins of China project for a year, and during that time we would talk and i I just built a house in Echo Park on my retirement on retirement money and he said if you um, if you want to uh, to work for me i 'll give you what you i 'll pay you what you were getting you know at the library as a teacher." And I also, if you, if you want to do a restaurant, give me a plan of what you want to do, and I will the, the corporation will basically lend you the money with your house as collateral. And that's how it happened. It would not have happened had I not had someone who would back me, because someone could come up with a great restaurant idea. But how do you get the money to get it started? Banks do not loan on restaurants, so that's the untold story.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Okay, I want you. I know you. I, I know you've thrown it at a date of 1980 when you were in China. But let's before. I want. I want to quickly get to the Shmata Kings coming and giving you their advice, mm-hmm. and their and their 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 decades of, of of wisdom on your endeavor, but, but as you do that, I want you to give us a date of opening Gorkys just as the first the first thing you say as soon as i put the, give you back the microphone
4: Gorkys opened in 1982 the and I, it had taken all of one thousand nine hundred and eighty one actually to put it together uh, a restaurant 's a really difficult thing to do, and nothing ever works you know as you want it to work with air conditioning and all of that blah blah. And so it opened in 82. I don't remember exactly what month. When I went back to the (laughs) scrapbook, I should have looked at that. But I think it was the spring of 82. And as I was putting it together, of course, when you're building something, people pop in. And the poppers in at that time were the people right around there, which were the Shmata folks there was a whole group of persians already at that time at that area and then there were the leftover european jews who'd come as first generation people and i or directly from the old country and i they all had advice for me when they found out that first of all you know my background was also eastern european jewish they thought oh my goodness they're going to talk to me like i was their daughter <laughs> and they, they patted me on the head and said, don't do this, don't do that. And I, so I've got to say that I sort of lost a lot of um, I, faith that this was going to be as easy as I thought because there, were, there was really almost no one who said, oh, that's a brilliant idea. First of all, it was mostly, why are you here on this corner? This will never make it. You know, 8th and San Julian, oh, no. What are you going to do about robberies? You'll probably have, you know, no goodnicks, you know, coming in and, and blah, blah. And I, and I thought, well, breakfast, lunch, you know, they're not up yet <laughs> or something. But I, when I first opened, fast forward to the opening of Gorky's, and there was a lot of pain and agony to get to that time, the. <laughs> Some of the men walked in, these were all men, and uh, they said, where are the hamburgers? We, I said, we don't do hamburgers, we're not going to do hamburgers, we're going try a little health food, you know, Russian stuff. Oh, you've got to have hamburgers, you can do whatever you want to do, but you've got to have hamburgers. Where are the French fries, we don't do French fries. And so it was really <laughs> that kind of beginning where I got really, really nervous, and I The first two days were a grand success. Everyone showed up because there was a new restaurant that had just opened. And then the third day, almost no one. And I thought, and for maybe for two weeks, maybe it was really, really slow. And then slowly word got out that there was a restaurant. And okay, maybe it didn't do hamburgers, but they had some pretty good stuff. And I think our salads and and the omelette the omelet station which was totally a new concept i've never seen i had never seen then or i have i seen it well sometimes i have it at buffets but i'd never really seen it in a restaurant that really drew people because they could make choices and omelets were healthy and I, and we got them on the health you know the health aspect
0: perfect I, I i don't want you to be too humble and not talk about your baked goods because that that is really, as 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 a fifteen year old going to Gorky's, God bless you. As as a fifteen year old going to Gorky's, your your baked goods are the the salient impression of of of, of Barbara shaves son. <laughs> At fifteen, my mother would be happy to hear me say this. So tell us about your baked goods because you you were the baker.
4: I was the baker, right? Well, I doubled the recipe that I always <laughs> made the, the, the chocolate cake that I always made for the kids. And I have two children, and by then they were teenagers. Almost, actually kind of, I think, 16, 15, 16 in that age group. And I, so I doubled that recipe, and I made the things that I had always made, almond cake I, and I, muffins. I had found some giant muffin tins, and I thought, wow, this is kind of a good idea because big muffins had not yet hit uh, and so,
0: I, I, re- I remember the big muffins. Oh,
4: yeah. We had the best brand muffins. They were, they were really as healthy as you can make them, you know, without adding lots of weird stuff. And uh, we, I just did all of the baking. I would go at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd start the baking. And, no, I went at 5 o'clock. That's right, in the beginning. And uh, there was plenty of room in the kitchen because we didn't have a lot of business. And... Uh, so I, I did all of that. We had a convection oven, which I'd never dealt with before and had some, you know, mistakes. But I I was able to do the baking for about the first three months. And then when Gorky's took off, that became impossible. I, I got someone to help me, and then I had to turn the baking over. And then later, uh, three years, two years down the line, I borrowed money from the city on a women's minority. I was a woman, so I was a minority. And I could borrow money to build the muffinry across the par- uh, the parking lot in the back. And that's, and so the baking was, it, it got very, very popular and I, there was no room in the kitchen for it.
0: Wonderful. Um, let's Let's kind of just walk through some of the major milestones of Gorky's. I think the first one I'm going to throw in your lap is your your cook quitting because he was out of his element. And, and why don't you just take that and just sort of get us through the arc of, of Gorky's, which defined my, my adolescence.
4: When you set up a restaurant, you realize you need a cook because you can't do it all. And so I advertised for a cook, and the only people that came to interview were all hispanic um i think one was guatemalan and one was and i finally hired felipe who was from mexican background and he'd had experience in mexican restaurants and and a chinese restaurant i thought "Mm, a cook is a cook you know all you do is you show them how to do it and they do it and he was really i he was so excited and so happy and i what he had always um been a Chef, I guess a cook for very small restaurants, and when, as Gorky's grew, in about the third month, I think, he decided to quit. The pressure was too great. He was overwhelmed by more and more staff and less and less room. And it all ended amiably, but very sadly, because here was a man who realized that you know, he couldn't handle a lot of pressure. And I did get someone else who stayed with me Joaquin, till the end till when I sold um, and uh, he was able to handle you know more and more people because in Gorky's we went from six employees to start, and two of those were part time to fifty five when I sold it, and that is a huge management problem, and actually that 's why I wanted. To I, I sold it. It was. It took over my life, and I still wanted a life, and it was not as a restaurateur.
0: <laughs> perfect, perfect. Do you do you just want to give us the year that you sold Gorky's, and just sort of wrap up, let's sort of look back, and then we're gonna we're gonna jump ahead to, to, to present day with you? But let's just let's just wrap up Gorky's. The the sign of which. That the can for the neon sign is still there i, I don 't know if the neon sign ever works, but it's it, the, the can 's still there mm-hmm.
4: I sold it in one thousand nine hundred and eighty five so I actually really only had it for um, for three three and a half years, and those three and a half years of uh, the the last year. Uh, was very, very difficult. I just did not have enough time in my day to even hire the people or, you know, work out how I wanted to do things. It just grew so big. Um, Thanks to a couple of... Of reviews, actually, there's a woman, Rose Dosti, with the L.A. Times, and uh, one of my kids was in um, in the hospital with penicitis, and I went out to read the L.A. Times in the early morning and opened it, and there was a big review of Gorky's, and uh, that just sent crowds stampeding there because they wanted to see something new, and then it got on, it caught it, people from the West Side and a lot of the the sort of shishi people who like to go to whatever is bad and bad and and, uh, and sort of, uh, you know, they, they kind of felt that downtown was kind of bad. You know, you're doing something really dangerous. And also it was, uh, it was different. So we had limos show up at Gorky's. And I realized this was not the Gorky's that I started out wanting. It was by then 24 hours. Uh, it, it went 24 hours after the first, I think, about eight months. And it was because the artists in the neighborhood wanted a night place. And they st- they started asking me, couldn't we keep it open? And t- Fred Sally, who's now a very well-known artist, was he and John Reeve, who was also an artist, very, also another really talented person, They were the first waiters' managers at night. And so they took it upon themselves. One of them would cook the omelets. They'd rush over to the omelet thing. The other one would wait, would bring the stuff to them. And, I mean, it was just hysterical. So, And then it turned out that people were hanging out until 2 o'clock in the morning, and then we were going to open for breakfast at 6, and it seemed not to pay us. It was too hard getting help in you know, and stuff, and so it just made sense to do it 24 hours, and then we had music every night, and so, I mean, it's just, it's more than one person can actually reasonably do, and I didn't know how to, I didn't quite know how to bring other people in without, I've got to say that I, I also probably didn't want to give up any power to let any, to let anyone else make any decisions, I wanted them to all be my decisions, which is not a good way to go into a thing, but that's, that's how I like to do things I think some of us who, who like to invent things or put things together, we just have that need to do it our way
0: Fantastic, you did it you, you, you did it I think I think we're just going to wrap it up because we've been talking for almost half an hour which is good very good but we're we're going to we're going to we're going to wrap this up and we're going to interview you again about your life now you've moved you've moved your parents into your building promenade west your mom's 87 today 97. 97, 97. I'm sorry you when when we started talking you said 87 I know
4: I made a mistake. <laughs> Wants
0: the credit. <laughs> <hard> so <laughs> so why we're, we're, we're going to sign off. We're just going to come back and interview you because it seems like you've lived about 25 other lives since, uh, since 1985. So why don't you just, um, why don't you just uh, give us one, one, one great memory you have about Gorky's that probably very few people remember or, or wouldn't have known because, because it was your restaurant, and then we'll just, we'll just sign off.
4: Oh, let's see. There are so many memories, but I think one of them, probably one that stands out, was when the Korean Airline NER went down. It was um, shot down, I think, by the by the Russians made a mistake, and that cost anything with Cyrillic writing to <laughs> to, to suffer. And so we had um, we had bomb threats. They called in uh, different, uh, you know, we're, uh, how could you people do it, and I mean, whatever. And I, one night, the police called, and they said, there's a bomb threat. There is a, we want to come and search for a package that I, we feel might be somewhere in the restaurant. I guess they'd been pretty explicit as to, you know, how many tables or where it was or whatever. And so... All of the diners this was about ten o 'clock at night, and I had to tell everyone listen folks i 'm terribly sorry, but if you, you can bring your dinner or you can come back later, but they, the police are coming in to do a bomb search and
0: Boy, that must that must have just sealed your popularity at that point
4: <laughs> otis Chandler from the l a Times was one of the diners. I was told I did not meet him. But uh, But everyone. One thing we had customers that were generally very, very up to whatever was handed to them, and uh, so everyone tromped over across the street. The police made a search. They did find a package, and it was there was nothing in it. But there was a, a bomb squad car that is really quite intimidating outside. And probably that was one of the memories. I mean, there's so many good memories, and, but that one was a pretty vivid one.
0: Perfect. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop. We're going to come back and interview about one of your 25 lives <laughs> since then. I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been my pleasure, really. Thank you. My name is David Kippen. I'm coming to you from my lending library, Libros Schmibros, on Mariachi Plaza in Boyle Heights. And you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. Thank you for listening to our podcast for the week of September 2nd. 2013. Our guests this week were Michael Holland, acting city Archivist, and Judith markoff Hansen, uh, the former restaurateur who brought downtown Los Angeles Gorky's in the early 1980s. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask you to continue to keep listening. And if you want to give us some feedback, we love feedback. Kim, can you please let people know how they can do that?
1: Well, you form a loop. That's how you give feedback. You can do that by coming to one of our events, like a bus tour or one of the free lava salons or walking tours. You can also send us an email. You can at the sunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at sotour.com. We are always so happy to hear from you, and we are grateful when our listeners go onto iTunes and write short reviews or give us some stars in the ratings, especially if you're a regular podcast listener who listens to other podcasts because iTunes has this nice uh, suggested podcast feature where you can see underneath people who listen to this podcast also listen to that podcast and it helps folks find us as more people are. And we are always grateful for your feedback and your ratings. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kim. All right, Kim, it's September. Let's look ahead. Uh, This Saturday, we've got hotel horrors, main street vice. That is a fantastic tour. That is a tour in which we go into several Old SROs, Uh, we go into them both for the uh, quality of stories around them and the quality of uh, their original decor and lobbies being intact.
1: Including the beautiful King Edward Hotel where you can see some of the most exquisite Egyptian marble. In downtown Los Angeles, so join us too. It's black with gold flecks. It's a month of crime bus tours. The following Saturday, the 14th of September, we're going to explore Weird West Adams. It is a gorgeous neighborhood of little micro neighborhoods with some of the most grim stories involving children you can possibly imagine, and soul stars and baseball stars. will also visit Rosedale Cemetery, where some very notable Angelinas are laid to rest forever. It's a, a tour about both true crime and the social history of Los Angeles, especially, well, passing all the way up to the Supreme Court, getting rid of those awful housing covenants that used to make it impossible for neighborhoods to integrate. I think you'll find it very interesting if you're an Angeleno or just curious about L.A. The following Saturday, September 21st, is Eastside Babylon, perhaps my most unhinged crime bus tour, centered around the Hanson radio shop murders, which are deranged to say the least. Some very, very rough stories on that tour. Uh, The Night Stalker, a terrible, terrible story about a mother suffering from postpartum depression and complete mania. Some funny stuff, too, but, you know, we have to have a very, very special snack break to deal with some of the pain and trauma on that tour, so we go to Brugere's, the last dairy, out in the eastern part of Los Angeles, San Gabriel Valley Way, and have some of their delicious chocolate milk. It's putting in a bottle and you'll like it. Finally, at the end of the month, we're doing Pasadena Confidential, a crime bus tour about rocket science and mad millionaires. We usually take that bus with Crimebo the Clown. However, Crimebo has a wedding anniversary and will not be joining us. That means if you've been meaning to take this tour, but you are terrified of clowns. I know you're out there. I hear from you people. Jump on it. Crime Bus' wedding anniversary does not always coincide with this tour. And so we'll be going to all of our favorite locations and having all the fun we usually have sans Crime Clown. Anything else you'd like me to talk about, my darling?
0: Blood and Dumplings October
1: 12th. Let's get into October. Blood and Dumplings. Yeah, Yeah, continuing the Crime Bus excursion theme. October 12th, it's the Blood and Dumplings tour of the San Gabriel Valley. James Elroy's mother's murder. Phil Spector. Gay's Lion Farm, the man from Mars Bandit, delicious dumplings served in the only children's playground, which is a California State landmark, and you can eat your dumplings inside the mouth of a whale, a giant whale that will not eat you back. Great fun. October 19th is the Real Black Dahlia that is uh, our most popular tour and our most popular crime bus tour by far, and we would love to have you join us. But if you want to, you better buy your tickets quickly, because as we walk in the footsteps of Elizabeth Short, many, many people want to walk in those footsteps as well. We will wrap up the month of October with a really interesting day. October 26th, we'll be giving a Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles Noir Tour. At the start of the day, and in the evening, we are uh, getting together the Lava Literary Salon community for a very special celebration of Charles Bukowski. Uh, Both these tours, both these events begin at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. And the Bukowski Salon introduces our new, much less expensive literary salon. We've cut the price more than in half. It still includes dinner, and this time it's actually going to include some very, very special treats to be announced Um, so $47 for a delicious dinner and presentation celebrating Bukowski with some really interesting people we very much hope you can join us we're super excited to make the literary salon a little more democratic and uh, bring more people together to celebrate the great Los Angeles writers who we love
0: thanks Kim thanks to everyone for listening please continue to stay tuned and I want to remind you you can't hit the
1: sunshine
2: you can't eat the sunshine, but you can make me a line for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood called Herbin between a South Pass and Highland, Park Grand Central Park. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a goldmine.